I want to sit in my mom's lap right now. It's what makes us different. <laughs> I went on every single door until someone told me yes. Well, I'd have to have at least one book. Every human has like a similar core. Get out there and meet as many people as I can. You're listening to the Alien Chronicles. So far, I have interviewed a baker who loves to dance, a public speaker in the making, an immigrants' rights advocate, a human rights activist, and an artist, all millennials, and all came to the U.S. either around or after 9-11. Their experiences as immigrants were unique but very similar in many ways. But today, I am changing things up a bit. My guest for today's show came to the U.S. in the 90s. His journey from a fighter pilot to a branding executive who has worked for internationally renowned brands like Prada and Giorgio Armani is an interesting one, to say the least. He's also a director who wants to create documentaries that highlight social issues. On a personal level, he continues to explore and practice Sufism's diverse cultural legacies in an attempt to achieve inner peace. Ali Arkhan will talk to us about different facets of his life, from being a fashion guru to a filmmaker and a Sufi. I'm your host, Sadia Khan, and you're listening to The Alien Chronicles, which starts right now. Welcome, Ali. So happy to have you on my show. Thank you, Sadia, for having me, and greetings to your listeners. So you grew up in Karachi, Pakistan, um, a city of, at the time, 8 million individuals. And now I think it's, what, 13 million? And then you moved to U.S., and this was in the 90s. And you moved to Waverly, Iowa, which was, at the time, what, 8,000 people living in that, that small city. It must have been a hell of a transition. Uh, what was going through your mind when, when you came to Waverly, Iowa? What were your first impressions? And what were initial few months like? Whoa, let me tell you, it was a long flight. <laughs> uh, um, literally, and um, like most people of my generation at that time, I didn't plan to come to America or any European country. I just, um, I was in Pakistan Air Force and it was an amazing career and I just thought this is something where I'm going to go with and this is where it's going to, I'm going to hang my hat. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and then um, I got suspended from flying. I couldn't fly anymore. So that was like ending a box. So I wanted to go and find a place where... I can be myself and discover myself really because I was literally I was 20 years old and I was looking for a change rather geographical change so at that time uh, a lot of American universities comes come used to come to Pakistan at that time and um, recruit students and they, you get an I-20 an admission letter from them and uh, and next thing you know um, you just come to school here so at that time there was a there was a seminar done by this private liberal arts college in Iowa and then I just happened to be there and considering I didn't have any planning or any aspirations to come to America so it was like it was an amazing amazing seminar got to understand what they were offering and um, and I applied and it was uh, and I got the visa and I came to study in 
Waverly, Iowa mm. at Rodberg College, which is very interesting because I never even heard of the name Iowa in my life before. So I'm like, okay, it must be that the place chose me. So that was my story. So I, know, I don't have any um, stories, real stories about coming to school here. And I never planned it. It just happened. And the place chose me instead of me choosing, choosing the place. So that was an amazing, amazing part. And, and through that, um, the most important part of my earlier settling in this country came along because the school had this program of having a local host family. And I was very, very lucky to find the Iversons who adopted me as one of their sons and after 28 years in this country they're still um, they are my second family or my family um, my mom away home away from home so it's been an amazing experience um, exploring um, second set of family or life in America through them so initial years um, initial months were very crucial um, Coming from 8 million people to 8,000 was a huge transition. Mm. Something um, I was scared, nervous, but optimistic. Um, so my American family really helped me navigate those challenging waters. I got to see an American culture through an American family, which I never thought of it like a hyphenated family, like an American family or Pakistani family. I just I just saw the same value system which I grew up with, the love, um, unconditional love and um, care and same unity of the family. And it was just an incredible time. So it was really helpful to have somebody like this holding hands and walking you through the culture. And through that, um, it cemented my relationship with this country. So what impressed you the most about American culture? And what did you miss the most about Pakistani culture? when you were living in Waverly, Iowa? Well, definitely food. <laughs> uh, Iowa was, and I don't think so still is, um, by any means, comes closer to gastronomical capital of the world. So um, the choices were very limited. But by that, I meant my family, my friends, and um, I was very homesick. I was, I was very homesick for a very long time. I was very sheltered. I had a very sheltered childhood growing up. So coming in here and living in this environment, it was, it was a growth opportunity. But at the same time, was uh, I knew that it's an, it's an opportunity of a lifetime to learn something about myself, which growing up in Southeast Asia, like, you know, it's something, it's always, Asha, she don't want to talk about anything. It, you know, it was quite challenging to know what communication means. Hmm. So I love the culture where you can be yourself and people can communicate openly and talk about anything. I don't know, maybe it wasn't in my family, but we talked about everything, but we talked about nothing. That's true. I mean, that that's how uh, Pakistani culture is. We don't talk about much. Uh, so when you were in Iowa, now you don't see as much diversity as you would, for instance, see in New York. So were you stereotyped in any way? Like, did you have any incident where, you know, somebody said something? Actually, um, 
it is a school town, so you do see some diversity around it. So it was, um, uh, people are a little bit more used to of seeing people around. But you know, when you first arrive here, you don't have those filters. You don't, I didn't have those filters. And I, I'm telling you, when I arrived here, it, it was such an amazing experience. And I was such in a happy land. I was absorbing everything. And everywhere you go, like... I would say there was an element of curiosity in a way people want to know about you, who you are, where you're from, and how are you thinking. Yes, of course, there were some stereotypes. Somebody will say like, oh, do you have video games back in Pakistan? <laughs> I just thought that was so funny. I'm like, I'm like, no, actually, there used to be one in next town. So we used to take our camel. We take about an <laughs> hour and a half, two hours, and you go there, and then, you know, you sit all together, and then you play one game, which goes into 50 people. And I swear on to God, they used to just think it's so true. They will look at you with like, you know, like, wow. And I said, just kidding. <laughs> so it will get a little bit lighter of its situations. How long were you in Wivili, Iowa? I went for a semester and a half. Um, and I realized it as great as it was. And it was, it, was a, it, it was a good founding space for me. I was finding my grounds. But I realized it. Um, I wanted to be in a place where it's a, it's a bit more opportunities for me. Because place I was coming for, I didn't have a safety net to go back home. And I knew that if staying in Waverly, Iowa, it might work out and might not work out. So I wanted to go somewhere a little bit more diverse, a little bit more cultural, a little bit a place where I can see some growth in myself. So I decided to come to the Big Apple, to the New York City. <laughs> and how was the transition like? It was coming, it was just like coming from a fast treadmill to a fast treadmill. So it was really easy. Like, you know, coming to New York, like people always thought like, you know, what did you think? And I always thought like, I found, I literally found no difference coming from Karachi to New York. It was just the same minus the skyscrapers. We didn't have taller buildings. So it was really nice. Other than that, like in the same rhythm of people and same voices. And I just thought it was incredible. I, I was, I was home. So what is the difference between um, New York of 90s and New York today? And I mean, in terms of how people treat each other or, or, or other things, did you, do you find any differences when you look back when you first came here versus now? Very important question, especially today. So when I first arrived, like, I didn't see no difference. Um, I just thought, maybe I was a little naive, but if there was any... If somebody was, all I felt was there was an element of curiosity where people generally wanted to know you. So it was fine. And coming to New York City was like coming to Manhattan was literally, truly the melting pot of its time. So, you know, you see everybody from every part of the world. So there was never a question where you came from and what did you do before this, who your family is, like, you know, all of those questions didn't, because I think we were all working towards the same goal of betterment of ourselves, our environments, our communities, and eventually the places which we represent. So I didn't feel any negative stereotypes or any change of value systems, but all of it changed on 9-11. Hmm. September 11th came in and I think nobody has been same since then. We all, are, we all are healing through that experience. I remember coming in, I was here that day and I witnessed that day very clearly and I just happened to be near World Trade Center because I needed to do some paperwork. And on the way back, I saw from the back of my cab and I can see and I'm hearing what's happening and it was, you were numb by the process, but I, w I had to get to work. So I'm, I had to accommodate all the employees who were at work environments to make sure they get accommodated and they get situated. 
on the way back, I was walking on Fifth Avenue and literally tears rolling down my eyes. And there was no traf- traffic. Everybody was just walking. And it was... At the same time, when you're mourning a part of you, because I felt still to this day that I lost a lot because I embraced the city as my home. But the next day, a very weird thing happened, and I started feel like I'm not... A part of me felt like that I'm not allowed to mourn. Mm-hmm. And my pain and my suffering is not, is not as great as theirs. And that duality kind of shook my ground. And from that point, it was a constant affirmation to yourself, no, you got to move on. Every time you see hundreds and hundreds of those posters anywhere of loved ones being missing or uh, or just in the environment when you feel all of that pain and anguish and anxiety, you you stay in solidarity with the New York. So I, it, as sad as it is, this happened, but I am glad I was with my fellow New Yorkers where there was no division, where one day we were all one. But Ali, um, do you think you felt guilt as well because of... The religion that you come from, uh, and and I ask this question because I came around that time, and I even to this day, when something goes wrong in in the U.S., if if there is an attack or something goes wrong, I feel guilty, which I shouldn't. Those individuals who who perpetrate those acts of violence do not represent me or my religion, but. Do you, and if so, what are, what, in what ways do you try to mitigate it? Or what gives you comfort? Well, to be honest about it, I can relate to that. Like every time there's a bombing or this sort of any of that incident happened, my first heart goes, oh, God, I hope there's not somebody from Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And it's the truth, and, or it's not a person of color or something like that. Not that it, it reduced the calamity. It's just the natural reaction. I don't know where it stems from, but I know what helps me solve that because instead of staying in this state of anxiety and, and, and not knowing what to do, I created a system around myself to support organizations and people who are making changes and who are working towards it. So that was a real comfort for me to finding a community and relate to it and work through it. So it kind of constantly affirm your own action and then you work towards it. You're 100% right. I am only your mirror. So I'm only going to see myself in you. So if I'm going to work around something like that, I, I, I choose to surround myself with the people who are making a difference in, an, in, in our environment, mm-hmm. who, are, who are going towards a change and who are who recognize that these are, these are alienated incidents in any community, in any environment, regardless of their culture, their religion, or their color. So going back to your initial years, um, so you came to New York, um, you went to NYU. Correct. And you did your bachelor's in what? International marketing and research. Okay. And you were a fighter pilot back home. And then you transitioned into the fashion world. How did you end up there? Well, as I said earlier, it's a long flight. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, coming from Southeast Asia, especially from Pakistan, um, creativity was never really encouraged. That's true. My father was a painter. Uh, he was an artist, Renaissance man. But I don't remember him ever telling us like, okay, it's okay to listen to certain type of music or listen to this or you know, 
have artistic sensibility or or his sense of poetry at that time like Faz and Mitaki Mir like you know it wasn't like you know I'm talking about I'm 15 years old like you know it was not in me at least so um coming in here to America I think it was it was a very interesting time because a transition was happening so I got to learn a lot of new things you know in terms of music in terms of um art and and eventually into fashion, which happened really accidentally because I had a time off in between. And a friend of mine, she was working in one of these fashion stores, and she's like, why don't you come and do our paperwork? And I'm like, okay, sure, no problem. I think that sounds fun. <laughs> Literally because I was rather looking forward for a really comfortable summer. So I started working for them, and from there I got recruited to work for Saks Fifth Avenue. And I'm like, okay, that sounds interesting. And I didn't know anything about fashion, literally. And I showed up, and uh, working at Saks Fifth Avenue, I got to understand the basic elements of fashion, the science behind fashion, and that really piqued my interest in it. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. But then I wanted to go to grad school, and at the same time, Prada came, and they recruited me for once, and for this when they came in second time. I'm like, okay, if I think it will be a good chance, let like, go work for Prada, and then um, I can go to grad school at the same time. So that was, I'm like, okay, in two years I'll be done. My family was already very unhappy with me. They're like, okay, anybody coming from that part of the world in 90s and going into fashion instead of finance was not really something, was, my, my parents were not really excited about it. Anyway, so I came to work for Prada for two years in my mind, and I was their stylist. So I just thought it would be great. And next thing I know, I was with the brand for eight years. And wow. it was an amazing experience. I got to learn so much about fashion through a brand, which is a true trifecta of style, art, and design. So it wasn't necessarily about the color which is in or the length of your skirt. I think it was it was an ideology and that really that really sat well with me and I I still to this day, like, you know, it is a house which carries a really strong place in my heart. And after Prada, you joined another fashion house, right? Well, I, I, I knew that I wanted to stay in the industry for some time. So I, I started my own consulting company and I worked for different fashion houses. I worked for Hermes. I worked for a lot of European houses. And eventually, um, coincidence of fate, my old president was working for um, Armani and they asked me to come and join in and it was the regime change and it was a fantastic opportunity to work for them and I worked for them for four years which was an incredible incredible opportunity to work for a heritage house and uh, yes yeah, so it's until that time I was still in a very fashion world. Getting ready in the morning normally I don't pay attention to what I'm wearing and today I was like you know I have to meet Ali so I have to look nice or at least wear things that are not like fashion mishaps or blunders. Um, so anyways uh, how are your culture and your tradition reflected in your work because you worked here for almost 28 years now. What are some of the uh, positives that you take from your culture and tradition and, and you know in, in incorporate that in your work ethic? Wow. Um, I mean, it was a great opportunity because I realized in certain places where I was working, I was the only person of color. And um, I didn't even realize it, when, to be honest about it, when I first started. But then I just thought with that, it came a sense of responsibility. And uh, 
it was about always giving you 200 percent i mean it was not open for discussion it was always 200 person no right to complain just carry on quite quite earlier part in my career like you know in my early 20s it was very i heard it few times and if you don't like it you can go back to your country and i'm sure every immigrant or not every immigrant but most of the people get to hear some form of that and with that um it creates a it stirs something in you and that's the alien so you can choose at that time to whether you're gonna join in or you're gonna separate and i always choose to join in and unite people so like to me my work was more important and i always felt very privileged to work in these fashion houses and the environments where I work in and the positions I carry to make difference in whatever capacity I could. And um, and I in a, in a way, I never thought that I'm representing my culture. I just thought I was representing myself. And my culture is who I am. You know, it's for me at times, and this is uh, something that happens to me, I just can't separate the two. And I, and I think it's just the burden of who we are and being representative of our culture or religion is something that I somehow take to heart. And I don't know, you said you don't, which is, which is a different perspective, but an interesting one indeed. So looking back, uh, if I were to ask you, being a person of color and an immigrant, did it hurt your career or did it help? I think it, I don't know. Let's put it this way. It Definitely was interesting to have a unique voice in the room. You look different. And um, people were always interested to hear ideas. And I didn't think so. It mattered which mm -hmm. accent it came from. I didn't think it mattered which color you came from. So to me, it was, or I was just like one of those energizer buddies. It didn't really matter to me. <laughs> or as my old CEO used to call me, like, here comes Ali and his let me take you to the moon projects. Uh -huh. So it really didn't matter to me. Like, you know, I just went in because it, it was so important for me to get things done and see things differently or make a change or make a difference or try something different all the time that it really didn't matter what other people thought of it. Like, it what it mattered was, like, you know, how do I make them see... And what are their challenges? And like, you know, it was more business and uh, more about assimilation of the thought process than who is saying this, where it's coming from. Um, so it wasn't really important at that time. Okay. So what are some of the interesting behind the scenes stories uh, in different fashion shows or, yeah? <laughs> wow. No kiss and tell, you know that. <laughs> um, it's not easy. You know, it was, it was a very privileged environment i must say that like you know to work with um a-list celebrities all the time to the last moment to go to the vanity fair party or dress them for the oscars uh, it was one amazing experience after another um quite chaotic um when you're in your jeans and t-shirt and they are into their super couture gown it's just <laughs> an amazing amazing experience but that being said towards the last of my projects which i did with armani was to design a um, make to major suit for peter dinklage from, from Game of Thrones. And to be honest about it, it was so funny. We had an amazing time. And I had to tell him, like, I'm like, well, I have never seen Game of Thrones. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, wow. And it was just like, uh, and I think it was a relief for him. 
Really? That because probably, because I didn't think so. He And we talked about other things and life in general. And we talked about the shoot and things. And we connected through that. And I never, because I, ne- I literally didn't have any interest. I never saw it. Because more and more your friends tell you about watching, to binge watch a show four years ago. Then you were like, oh, I'll get to it when I get to it. And I'm like, mm, I don't want to talk about it. When you miss, miss the moment, you know, you miss the moment. You don't want to be like, you know, carry on. So anyway, for me, it was just like, you know, fast forward after watching Game of Thrones, binge watched it for like weeks. I was just like, oh my God, what a fun <laughs> thing I could have that. So I could have told you like a fun story, but it wasn't really as fun story because it wasn't really, um, I don't know. It, it, we had an amazing, interesting time. And like, you know, we did the shoot for Esquire and where he was the cover of it and wearing the suit, which I designed for him. So it was really an amazing Oh my God, that's, that's an amazing story. So you've like, obviously you interact with fashion designers. You, you've seen so many models. You live in fashion world. What are some of the best and worst purchases you made? There are no worst purchases, darling. <laughs> um, but I must say that I got an ostrich coat with a mink lining from Prada. It was an off-white color. Not I have only to see like that. Eater. It is an incredible... You will, you will, you will. <laughs> um, so that is definitely like my fantasy purchase and I'm really, really proud of it. Um, every time I wear it, you always get photographed and it's just... It's such an... I don't know. It's just a kind of false moment but at the same time you kind of enjoy that it comes with a fashion perk my worst purchase was um i although i will never admit to that again i bought a fake rolex one time <laughs> <laughs> oh my god it was just and i um and, and my friend john was with me and then um still this day i get reminded of that so yeah that's one thing that like so for me the <laughs> mantra is if you can't afford it just don't buy it uh, but I can understand. Like, I, I get have, it. I have, I have I get it, I get to it. do it a few times. <clears throat> I get it. I get it. I'm, I'm, I, it, was, it was a green face. It was a hunter green face. It was wow. a fantastic Rolex, which I didn't want to buy because I don't really like Rolexes. <laughs> Sorry. But um, it was a weak moment. I was going on holidays to some place and I just thought, okay, that's fine. Even if it, something happens to it, that's quite all right. It's not my real watch. That's true. Uh, it was my Folex, like my fake Folex. <laughs> so we have fashion guru here with us. So what is the biggest fashion blunder or mishap every girl should avoid? Well, today we are living in fashion renaissance, to be honest, but there are no no's. So you can do anything with the confidence and it's a go. Mm. But that being said, when it comes to women and fashion footballs or mishaps, I just think over-accessorizing. To me, I always think like, you know, when you think you have too much on, just always look in the mirror and take something off. Trust me, you will thank me later. Just take one thing off and it always helps. And other than that... Maybe undergarments, just reflection of some of it or just seeing some of it in its own entirety. It just kind of like, a, it doesn't matter how great your outfit is. If I see some of the strap or something showing on or some sort of unnecessary lining, <laughs> I think that's really, I find it super tacky. So Ali, you, you're still in fashion world, but now you're also working on a documentary to create awareness about different social issues. Again, that's another transition that you did. Uh, Why did you transition into filmmaking now? Working in fashion industry for almost 20 years as a storyteller, I wanted to find another medium of expression. Mm. I wanted to add my voice and observation to all the architects of change. And I just thought there was an internal change which was 
which I recognized at the time. Um, I loved my industry and I wanted to continue to love it, but I wanted to have new tools. I wanted to grow from it. And in the same time as I saw there was a climate of change outside. So, and I wanted to document and um, add my voice to this observation, working with the architects of change. So I left my career in fashion, I put it on hold, and I was exploring new venues to find another medium of expression. So out of my bucket list, there was always, I've always wanted to make one film in my life. So I'm like, okay, this will be a good time. So I went to School of Visual Arts, where I, used, where I had a, always had a very good relationship with, and it was an amazing, amazing experience. And they were starting a documentary filmmaking course in four days, so which was great. I got to speak to the chair, and then, boom, I was in. And um, I am so eternally, eternally grateful for them for easing the process on me because I was just like a grandfather in the class. Everybody came in. <laughs> Everybody came in with their 8, 10, 20 film resumes and here I was never um, carried a camera. On a video side, I was a photographer, but I never made videos. So, so it was amazing to get into that. I was also very involved at that time within the holistic community and it helped me dive deeper into the spiritual ecology and uh, environmental and social reforms. So that led me to my current project, which was, um, it's about four-year long-term observation working mm. into this coastal community that helped me understand and document the project as I was learning and exploring subjects like permaculture, urban development and sustainability, and community building. Mm. So these are the subjects um, I was always very curious about, but living in Manhattan, in, I just thought like, you know, it was always a silo. So I was always interacting with my own types or certain group of people, but I wasn't, at some point I wasn't really growing. So it was an amazing experience to go into this community. And the minute I, I arrived there, it was, I felt a sense of communal relationship, a little human aspect of it. And more and more I scratched the surface of this community, this community got so much more fragrant to me. And, um, and as I was learning these new processes, I kept documenting them and kept documenting them. And it became this four-year project of hope. So when are you releasing this documentary? When can listeners see watch it? Well, um, hopefully next year. Um, it's a first-time documentary filmmaker, so it's just like having your first child. You're never ready. Um, but it, you know what? I, I, I want to keep it as authentic as possible. So we are growing with this project. We have a very good relationship with some distributions. So... I'm very privileged that, and I find it very lucky that, like, you know, I have a rain on it that I, I, I'll see when the project finishes. But hopefully, like, next year, like, because I really want to start other projects, so it will be interesting to finish this project and bring it into life. Uh, on a personal level, you, you believe in Sufism, and, and that is an important part of who you are as an individual. And first of all, I would like you to explain to our listeners what Sufism is and how has it changed your personality over time and things that you do in terms of social change that you're trying to uh, bring um, does it have anything to do with what you believe in 
again, I think it has a lot to do with my upbringing, growing up in Pakistan. And we, I always thought like Sufism was always about Qawalis and listening to Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan and like, you know, that Sama aspect of it, which I had a quite much of a quota of this. We all grew up with listening to that beautiful music and going to, if ever, you can make it to one of the shrines and you'd see some aspect of it. But there was a very diluted version of any type of... Um, Sufism or any type of ism, um, to me, I I couldn't relate to that really. Um, I just thought there will be something more to it, mm-hmm. which came back to my life much later into it. So to me, like you know, Sufism is the mystical aspect of Islam and introspective journey that that brings one closer to the divine. The reason, um, one of the few things which helped me get closer to that was the teachings of. Hukukul Ibad and Hukukul Allah, like which is the rights of the people and rights of Allah. And in Sufism, I see more and more prevalent um, the humanism aspect of it. And that really, really helped me to, or rather opened my perspectives about it. And I, I went in with, I was seeking um, a re-entry or like reaffirmation into the religion. Minus today, like we can't even use the word religion. It's like such a taboo. But I, I always had a very strong place for religion in my life. And um, my relationship with the power above was always very strong. And growing up, like my father always um, said, like, you know, don't have a middle person in and, you know, that have a direct contact with the power above. Okay. So though you don't need like have these all these conduits. So I'm like, okay. So it was kind of um, not sure whether it is good, not good. I'm like, okay. But this was the time you experience it for yourself. So to me, coming into the Sufism was not like actively seeking something. It was just exploration of things. I just happened to walk in into the chapter um, and seeing. Um, a female spiritual guide, a leader like Sheikha Faria, it was an amazing, amazing experience. And um, I mean, it's it sounds beautiful, um, and and I I truly agree with you when it comes to um, the concept of Sufism and how it manifests itself in serving humanity, and and that's what um, Sufism emphasizes on, and and that's the part of Sufism that I think as Muslims we we all. Um, are in awe of. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is something that I ask all my um, guests and I just love their answers. Um, describe America in one word. Fulfilling. Hmm, nice. I've, I've gotten so many different answers and as I said, it's like every time I ask an immigrant this question, they come up with such a, such a beautiful expression of what they think America is. And if you could change one thing about America, what, what would that be? Divisiveness. You think it's more now than it was when you came in 90s? Correct. Recently, at Thanksgiving break, I got to go visit my family in Atlanta. And like my older brother lives there with his wife and two kids. And they're just an amazing, amazing, they have an amazing group of friends. And so it was, um, it was always great to do Thanksgiving with them to in its all entirety. The love for the bird is a little bit too much. But um, <clears throat> along with that, then we got to take a little trip to Gatlinburg in Tennessee. And let me tell you one thing. I just, it made me so happy to make, to realize the choices I have made living in here. I feel so privileged because there was such an, 
opposition of thought process or the experience over there was quite jarring. Um, in a direct contact where people avoid eye contact with you or look the other way, it was... It was a, it, it's sad it, and it's derogatory. It was. It was just, I mean, it, it's difficult to stay. I'm still, I am still finding ways to describe it, like, mm. you know, into myself, what it was. But it wasn't something why I came here for. And if it is what it is, then this is not where I, I call home anymore. So um, if, if, if those people were listening right now, although I doubt they would be listening to my part, but if they were, if you could just just remove one misconception about immigrants, what would that be? If you were to address those those particular people? Well, I don't, I mean, I literally, I haven't really come to my own sense of it, like what is it that I would tell them, but in general, the miscon- misconception about uh, um, refugees or immigrants are, is always about they're here to take your job. Actually, they're not to take your job. Um, they're not here to take the job away from the native born. They're here to explore opportunities, maybe financial and um, cultural or personal. Not each one of us is designed to come here to accumulate toys and build empires. Like, you know, some of us like come here to because we want to learn something about ourselves. Mm. Uh, you know, what am I made of? What is what is it that I want to see and what else is out there? So, you know, I don't know whether if immigrants, if the native understand that and not take this as a threat, I think it, it will... It will create a beautiful environment of unity and hope for all of us to live together. And um, I know it sounds like a cliche, but I am I'm a I'm a project of hope. Like you know, I'm all about how can we bring people together. And Ali, in true sense of the word native, I don't even consider them natives because I, to me, it's yes, they came like they parents or the grandparents or whoever came a few generations before you and I and and that's the only difference that we have like to me that's the beauty of America that everybody has was an immigrant at some point or is an immigrant right now so anyways moving on um, before I end our interview which I am thoroughly enjoying we will do rapid fire round and this is like oh, it's going to be yes <laughs> it will be fun questions I hope so <laughs> you're gonna get it one way or another so uh, my first question fashion or film both no you have to choose one fashion oh okay um, <laughs> on a scale of one to ten how weird are you and in what ways out of chart <laughs> <laughs> Your biggest fear? Nothing. Really? If you could eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Good bread. Yeah, me too. (laughs) If you could only take three things to a deserted island, what would they be? Voluntarily? Yeah. Is it by choice? Yeah, by choice. Okay, I'll take Wi-Fi with me. I'll take some water and... A tool or something like a knife or something hmm. like that. Just that's it. Name three things on your bucket list. That's easy. Um, Africa. Um, Where in Africa? 
all of all continent. Mm-hmm. I want to do like I wanted to take like um, two months just to travel all around, mm-hmm. understand the different pockets of it and the cultural differences and and tribal importance and work with indigenous culture and get to see some of that. I think that will be I will be I will die and go to heaven with that. So <laughs> the, and the third one would be I always wanted to open um vocational school for girls in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. So that's always going to be my priority. I'm just not ready yet. I've been working towards it and hopefully one day I'll be able to do that. And if you could have any superpower, what would you want? Time travel. Not because of the cliche because my mind goes in a million places all mm. the time. I'm here, I'm there. I'm like I'm I'm very visual. I'm with you on that. So I just thought it would be interesting to like go that if I'm thinking about it, I'm building a whole story around it. It would be nice to be there present and literally make the difference of like, you know, is it something what I imagined or whatever it is and welcome that. Your biggest failure? There are no failures in life. There's no failure for me. There are only experiences which could have gone wrong, but they're not. I don't look at things as failures or success. Your biggest achievement? an unconditional love from my family. Mm. And if you were to describe yourself in three words. STLC says crazy sexy cool. <laughs> What's the best uh, Can I redo that answer again? Yes, you can. <laughs> crazy sexy cool. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you ever got? I was working with Steve Jobs and he said to me, never sell a product, always sell a brand. it was so early in my career and i think it stayed with me in such a good place and it helped me become a storyteller for the longest time and i just think it's such a valuable advice and yeah. more and more i looked at it from a different different time in my career and it has been such an incredible in workspace it was always mm. such a parcel of knowledge mm. that helped me achieve a lot in my life. Your idea of vacation? Experiencing different cultures off the beaten path. Mm. Cultural diversity is? Essential. Favorite emoji? Folded hands. I like that one too. <laughs> Tea or coffee? Coffee. Really? I thought you would say tea. You're from Pakistan. Coffee tea? <laughs> yeah, tea and like sometimes um the problem with tea is like I love tea also but not everybody makes tea as it should be. That's true. And tea is like that. It's good, it's good. And there is not good, it's just not tea. And can we say that chai tea is wrong because chai tea means tea tea? Can we just have either chai or tea? call it chai then you know exactly what you're talking about yeah. tea we could be green tea chamomile tea stone sea like, chai tea and like no that is like that is like like a that is like a faux pas <laughs> home is where my heart is it's so important in my personal trajectory to be from everywhere and from nowhere mm-hmm. and this is what some bit something i've been working on myself for a long time It's like de-rooting yourself and make home where you are. 
And on this positive note, we end our interview. Thank you so much, Ali, for coming to our show and for sharing your story. Thank you, Sadia, for having me. It's, it's been really, really fun. And I hope, um, you know, we get to get some feedback from your listeners. I would like to thank all the listeners for joining us today and those who have supported us. If you want to support us even more, subscribe to our podcast. And if you have a story to tell or any new ideas, please contact us at thealienchronicles at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Chronicles Alien. And you can find us on Instagram at The Alien Chronicles. Please stay tuned for our next episode when we will bring to you another immigrant story. And in the meantime, stay connected.